This morning we are thinking about elders again. And after three weeks now of doing this, some of you may be saying to yourselves, okay, what does this have to do with me? Why doesn't he just explain all these things about elders to the people in our church who are actually going to be elders? Why do we all have to hear three weeks worth of this? Uh, and if you're asking those questions, don't feel, feel bad necessarily because they're good questions. Uh, and if I don't give you a good answer to those questions, then some of you might just be tempted to tune out this morning or worse yet, to settle in for a good half hour's nap. Especially when I tell you that I have 20 points to my sermon today. Some of you might really be tempted to settle in for a nap. They're going to be very brief points, I promise. But the question is, what do any of these points that we're going to make this morning have to do with you if you're not one of the people who might become one of our elders? Why should you listen this morning? I want to give you two reasons why all of you should listen. First, because it is you, the congregation at Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church, who are ultimately going to be the ones to recognize and select these men from among yourselves. It's up to the congregation to recognize its leaders. And so you need to know what you're looking for. You need to know what kind of men we are to recognize as spiritual leaders in our flock. So for that reason, it may even be helpful for you this morning to take some notes, to write down these 20 short points that we're going to make, and to later go back to those notes and to the scriptures that we're going to see and to pray through the church role, comparing the list of qualifications that we're going to see for God's leaders with the men in our church, not so that you can disparage any, but so that the cream will rise to the top and the men who ought to be leaders and examples for us will be obvious to you. That's one reason why you should listen today. There's another reason. And I think this other reason is more uh, up close and personal. It may be more hard-hitting for you. But you need to also realize this morning that you, the congregation at Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church, are either going to benefit from or be harmed by your spiritual leaders. If we don't do this right, much harm will happen to your souls. And much hurt may come into your lives and your families if we don't get this right. And I want to illustrate that for you by reading a story uh, or a letter that I got from an old friend this week. I want to illustrate to you how spiritual leaders can either be breaths of fresh air in a congregation or how they can be slow leaks of deadly poison. I got a letter from a, a guy I went to high school with a couple of weeks ago because he looked at our website and he saw what we were studying and he said, oh, I recently started attending a church and we're talking about these very same things right now. And so he sent me a letter, but I want to I read to you what he said about how spiritual leadership has made an impact in his life, for worse and for better. I've been somewhat of a church dissident the last ten years or so with a grieved spirit and a fruitless life. My mother had an affair with the pastor of the church I grew up in, and this came to light when I was 16 and led to an ultimate demise of my faith. You know what kind of person I was in high school. Not many ethical boundaries to speak of. As I've gotten older, the Lord has called me continuously and laid a desire on my heart to serve him. Unfortunately, I have extreme reservations about the church as a body and an overall distrust for the leadership. 
Now let me read to you how he said God is beginning to turn the corner in his life, this time through a godly spiritual leader. He says, I've been attending a new church here and I'm excited to report that yesterday was my third week of attendance. And I really feel this church is coming out of a cloud similar to my own experience. The previous pastor of the church preached messages minimal on Scripture with an overall let's all be better people message. He also came before his congregation and admitted a long-standing addiction to pornography. Now I get a sense of how much the people of this congregation were starving to be spiritually fed, and it is like a flower blossoming. They have latched on to and supported a new minister who places an emphasis on biblical principle. I'm excited, too, because this has allowed me to overcome my own skepticism and trust in the undying lessons found in Scripture. I now have a renewed passion for Jesus, and I can see the way he's working in my life. You see how important spiritual leadership is? Spiritual catastrophe, as he called it, the ultimate demise of my faith, was wrought by an ungodly, unqualified leader in his growing up church. And now God is breathing new spiritual life into him through the read of a godly leader, one whom he said places an emphasis on biblical principle. In other words, we're going to do what's right here, whether it hurts or whether it's easy or not. This is just one man's story. I want you just to imagine for a moment those two churches, the church that he grew up in where the pastor had an affair and the church that he has just come to where the previous pastor never taught the Bible and was a pornography addict. And now they have a new pastor who is actually teaching the Bible and living an example. Imagine how many other people in those two churches share similar stories about how leadership has either devastated them or been life-giving to them. See, humanly speaking, the eternal welfare of entire churches and in them dozens or hundreds of people depends in large measure on the character and the leadership of the elders. So I conclude this morning that life and death things are at stake. What we are going to see in just a moment from the scriptures is of life and death importance. It is of life and death importance that we get the right men into the leadership roles in our church. And therefore, it's life and death important that you all listen today and listen well and listen closely to the word of God as we're going to find it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So turn to 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and let's hear what God says about his leaders. Paul is writing to his young associate Timothy about how to organize churches. And he says this, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, now remember the word overseer and elder are interchangeable in the New Testament. So if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred 
by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. I said I had 20 points this morning. And the reason why I have 20 points is not because I want to preach a long time. It's because in these verses and in a parallel passage in Titus 1 that we're going to look at in a few minutes, there are 20 different qualities that God wants to see out of his spiritual leaders, out of the elders in a church. So you can call it God's 20-point inspection for spiritual leadership. And like the the lube joints that give you a 20-point inspection, I'm going to try to give it to you with all speed, only spending a minute or so on each quality. So again, um, breathe a sigh of relief, but be ready because we're going to move quickly through these. So here goes. An elder must be, first of all, verse 2, above reproach. Above reproach. This phrase is, is really a summary, I believe, of all the other qualities. And all the other things that he's going to say, this man must be above reproach. And that simply means not open to charges. Above reproach doesn't mean that a man is perfect, but it means that if he had an enemy who was trying to find something, some shred of evidence with which he might ruin his character, that enemy wouldn't be able to find anything. That this man lives above board. And when he makes mistakes, he admits it, he makes up for it, he apologizes for it, he accepts and and seeks forgiveness for it. He is above reproach. He is a man, therefore, who is a solid Christian example. That's what all of these things are about, primarily, is the, the leader's example. He is a man in his leadership in the home who is an example. In his leadership in the church, he is an example. In his propriety at his job or in business, he is an example. He is above reproach. He is not open to shameful charges. Next, Paul says he should be the husband of one wife. And there's a debate as to exactly what Paul has in mind here. And we're not going to get into all the, the ins and outs of the debate today, but literally the phrase here is he is a man of one woman or a man of one wife. So at the very least, it means that an elder cannot be a polygamist and he cannot be an adulterer. He must be faithful to his wife. Now, it may mean more than that. It may have some things to do with divorce and remarriage and etc. But at the very least, what Paul is saying is an elder is to be held to the highest standard of faithfulness in his marriage. Let's let's think of it like this. I heard a pastor preaching on this very topic, and he said this is how we can gauge that. One way we can gauge it. What if all the men in the church imitated the elders in the way they treat their wives and in the way they handle their marriage? What would happen in a church if everyone imitated the spiritual leaders in their marriages? Would it be a good thing or would it be a bad thing? That's one question that we can ask ourselves as leaders and that you should ask of your leaders. If I imitate them in anything, what will be the result? Especially in their marriages. Only if they are worthy of imitation in their faithfulness and love to their wife should they be an elder in God's church. Next he says they should be temperate. Temperate. And this is repeated in Titus 1.8. We'll see in just a little bit. But, but Titus in, one, in Titus 1.8, Paul says they should be self-controlled. Self-controlled and temperate uh, are synonyms. What does it mean, though, for this man to be temperate or self-controlled? It means that the elder must be a man who has a bridle on all of his passions except for his passion for God. 
that God is what drives him, not food, not money, not sex, not drink, not ball games, not hobbies. He is not controlled by anything except God and the love of God, which constrains him, and the word of God, which instructs him. He is temperate. He is self-controlled. Next, he is prudent. We're still in 1 Timothy 3, 2. Prudent. Again, Paul restates this in Titus 1.8, I think, by saying that he must be sensible. Again, those are two words that mean roughly the same thing. To be prudent or to be sensible means that the leaders in the church have to have enough wisdom and, yes, enough common sense to lead a group of people. Anyone who's leading a group of people needs wisdom and common sense, don't they? Lots of difficulty and lots of harm can be avoided if a manager at a workplace or a teacher in a classroom or a parent in a home simply has an ounce or two of common sense. And so must these men. If you have a man who's really spiritual, but he just is terrible at decision making, he shouldn't be an elder. He needs to be sensible or prudent. If it's important in business and in the home and in the school to be wise and commonsensical, And it's even more important in God's church. So the elder must be prudent. He must next be respectable. Respectable. The elder must be someone, as we just said a few moments ago, that the church members can look up to. That they can respect. That they're not afraid to say, that's one of our spiritual leaders. They would meet him in the store and they wouldn't be afraid to introduce their friends to him and say, this is our pastor or this is one of our elders. That means he's got to be a man who's honest at work and in his business. He's got to be a caring husband. He's got to be a loving father. He's got to work hard at whatever his job is, whether his job is is paid in the church or whether he's a lay elder and he's got a job elsewhere. He's got to be someone who is an example in how he works, someone who respects the elderly, someone who respects authority out in the world. Respectable. That's what an elder must be. Next, he must be hospitable. Hospitable. Still verse 2. This word literally means that he's a friend of strangers. The elder is to be a man who has an open heart and an open home to hurting people and needing people and to travelers, which was the case in the first century. There were many people who were traveling by foot and there weren't always inns at every place. And so one of the places that they would stop would be at the pastor's house, the elders of the church. Because if anyone should be hospitable and welcome people into his home, it should be the spiritual leaders in God's church. Let me just interject here, ladies, wives, that this means that elders have to have wives who eagerly accept this as part of their ministry as well. They have to be willing to have an open home, too. In the first century in particular, as people traveled along and needed places for lodging, um, the most common Uh, happening in the church as the elders would lodge travelers was that they would lodge traveling missionaries. These missionaries would be making their way through the countryside off to unreached villages that had never heard of the gospel. And it was the elders' job of anybody in the church. They were the first ones that should say, Hey, we are so glad to have you. Welcome to our family as you're traveling through. You can stay with us. We will feed you. We will send you on your way with whatever supplies you need. So implicitly also this call to be hospitable is a call to be actively involved in the cause of world missions. You have leaders in your church that don't really care about missions and getting the gospel to unreached people. They're not fit to be leaders in God's church. Next, elders must be able 
to teach, able to teach. We've, we've spent some time on this in the last uh, few weeks. We'll just spend a moment on it today. In Titus chapter 1, Paul repeats this, this one as well, where he says this, The elder must be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So what is Paul saying in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1? He's saying that the elder has to be able to teach. He's saying that the elder has to know the word of God, that he has to know the word of God well enough that he can communicate it accurately to others. And he must know it well enough so that he can readily and quickly recognize false teaching when he hears it. If someone comes into the church and begins to proclaim false teaching or to spread it among the members, the elders should be the first ones whose ears go, wait a second, that's not right. We've got to correct that. So they've got to be men who know the word and are able to teach the word to others. And this is crucial. This is their main job, we've been saying, is to know and to teach the word and then to pray for the people. There may be lots of godly people in the church, people who love the Lord, but people who, for one reason or another, just aren't the deepest students of his word. And as wonderful it is, as it is to have those people in the church and as important a role as every godly person plays in the church, a godly person who doesn't know the word in and out is not qualified to be one of these leaders because the main responsibility of the elders is prayer and teaching the word. So he must be able to teach. Now we move into verse 3 where Paul says he should be not addicted to wine. Not addicted to wine. We touched on this before when we spoke about temperance. But evidently, Paul thought this particular kind of temperance was of a special concern. The phrase here is literally not sitting long at his wine. Pay attention to that. It doesn't say that the elders or any Christians, for that matter, don't have any wine. It says they don't sit long at their wine. They are not addicted to their wine. They are not controlled by their wine. They do not drink too much of it. They know in everything, including in their appetites, when to say enough for the sake of the kingdom. So with every interest that a a leader has, and particularly with alcohol, he has to be able to draw lines in the sand so that he can lead effectively. Next, he is to be not pugnacious, not addicted to wine or pugnacious. Now, some of you are saying, what what does pugnacious mean? You think of the little dogs, the little pug dogs is what I think of when I see this word. Um, And uh, if you have a really mean pug dog, then that would be the right way to think because pugnacious means that a person is argumentative or quarrelsome. Literally in the Greek, it means someone who is given to blows, which I think is why it is preceded immediately by the warnings about wine. Someone can't control their drinking of wine, then they're going to be given to fighting, quarreling, arguing. You've all seen that. But not just when when it deals with wine, but just in general. This is a man that is not an arguer and a fighter. Titus 1.7, Paul says something similar, uh, that a spiritual leader in the church of Jesus Christ must not be quick-tempered. That's similar to pugnacious. He can't be the cause of unnecessary controversy in the church, either because of his words, what he says or how he says it, because of his actions, or because of the attitude that he carries with him. Not pugnacious, but instead, moving in verse 3 again, gentle. This man must be gentle. The servant of God has to be kind with people. That's simple enough, isn't it? 
We want that in every kind of leadership, someone who is kind, someone who even when they have to come to us to correct us or to offer us a rebuke, speaks the truth in love. And also, I would say to be gentle and kind means to be quick to listen. So the elder is to be gentle. gentle. Next, he is to be peaceable. Peaceable. Here again, knowing the literal Greek translation is helpful. The word peaceable here literally means against fighting. There's a word for peace, but that word's not actually used here. The word here is, is two words, two Greek words put together. One is against and the other one is fighting. This is someone who is against fighting. So it means that he must be peaceable. He must be a peace lover. But I think that, that the fact that it's saying he is actively against fighting is, is not just that he loves peace, but that he's willing to get his hands dirty to make peace. If there are problems in the church, if there are problems between members or problems in the church as a whole, and people are at each other's throats for one reason or another, the very first people to jump in and try to make things right and try to bring biblical reconciliation should be the elders. They are peacemakers. They are peaceable. They are also free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. Titus 1 again says something similar. They are not fond of sordid gain. This means that the elders are not cheats. They don't cheat people in business. They don't turn in a time card that has more hours on it than what they really work. They're not cheaters, but they're honest in their financial dealings. It also means that the elders are financially disciplined rather than being foolish spenders. Someone who is a lover of money makes big purchases that he can't afford. That's not what elders, that's not what leaders do because that's not what God wants his people to see as an example. And most important, I think, when it says that the elder is not a lover of money, I believe what Paul has in mind is that he's not someone who hoards his money and not someone who lavishly spends his money on himself, but someone who is generous with his money. Someone who is willing and ready to give his money away or his possessions away. So we said earlier that elder has to have an open heart and an open home. He also has to have an open hand, being willing to give. All these are ways that you can tell if someone loves money. If someone won't give money away, they love money. If someone cheats to get money, they love money. If someone spends money they don't have, they love money and the things that money can buy. And all these things are not to be present in the man of God. All these things are things we should look for when we're looking for elders. Now, we're in verse 4, and the elder is someone who manages his own household well. Manages his own household well. Now, what does it mean to manage your own household well? Well, he tells us in the rest of the verse, keeping his children under control with all dignity. So if you're going to look at spiritual leaders, you look at their qualifications and then you move from them and you look at how they treat their wives. We already said. And then from there, you also look at their children and how their children behave. They keep their children under control with all dignity. Now, there's a two part agenda there. First, that they keep them under control and then that they keep them under control with all dignity. The elders children have to be under control. They have to be well behaved, reasonably well behaved. Now, all kids are going to disobey sometimes, right? All kids are going to make their parents look like real dummies sometimes because of the way they act in public. So we're not saying that the children never make a mistake. We're saying that the children ought to be, as a general rule, obedient to their parents. 
And that should put to bed all the jokes about pastor's kids and how they behave horribly. The reason why that's a joke is because that's really true. And if that's really true, then there's a lot of men serving in churches that should not be leaders. So they have to be under control. But then the second part was that they have to be under control and the, the elder must keep them under control with all dignity. That means that this man doesn't keep his children under control by always yelling at them by ranting and raving at them, by making a fool out of himself, or by embarrassing his children. He keeps them under control with dignity. So the elder and his family should be a picture for the rest of the church of gentle gentle but firm parenting, and it should be a picture of loving and reasonably behaved children. And Paul goes on to say in verse 5, If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, over in Titus 1, we're going to read it in a few moments, but over in Titus 1, Paul, Paul adds this about elders and their children. In verse 6, he says that they should have children who believe, is the translation that most of your Bibles will have. Children who believe. And on the very surface of that, it seems like what Paul is saying is, not only should your children be well-behaved, 1 Timothy 3, but they should also certainly be believers. And if your children aren't all Christians, then the man cannot serve as an elder. And that may well be what Paul means. And there are some, some very conservative, very faithful Christians trying to interpret the Bible who say that's exactly what it means. If an elder doesn't have his children who are Christians, then he shouldn't be a leader in God's church. But I want to point out two things for you to think about. One, I want you to remember that every individual salvation is ultimately in the hands of God and not in the hands of their parents. So remember that. Some of you have children who don't believe. And you would give your right arm if they would believe and be saved and be in church with us on Sundays. But they're not. And you can't make them. You can try everything that you know how to try, but you cannot change their heart. Only God can do that. Christianity isn't passed down genetically. Therefore, if Paul is requiring that all elders make sure that their children be Christians, then that would be a strange request, wouldn't it? He's asking them to do something that no parent can guarantee. Secondly, I want you to note that this word for believe in Titus 1, uh, it's the same noun that sometimes the Bible uses translated faith. Faith and belief are the same thing. Um, Sometimes that word is also translated faithful. It's the same word for belief, faith, faithful. All one noun in the Greek. So it very well could be that what he's saying here is not children who believe, but children who are faithful. That may be what he is saying. We don't know for sure because it could go either way. But it may well be that what he's saying in Titus 1 is the same thing that he's saying in 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, he says they should be obedient, they should be under control. And in Titus 1, perhaps he is saying virtually the same thing by saying they should be faithful to their parents, obedient to their parents. If that's what he's meaning in Titus 1, then that melds a lot better with 1 Timothy 3. And it also uh, fits a lot better with what we know the Bible teaches about salvation and how it is between God and the individual and their parents can't control it. So I think the overarching thing is you look at a pastor's family. How does he treat his wife? How does he treat his children? How do his children respond to him? If his children are wild and disobedient, 
then he is not qualified to be a leader in God's church. Next, we go to verse 6, and we read that he should be not a new convert. Not a new convert. It's important. You don't take someone who's just recently become a Christian and put him on stage as a teacher just because he's talented or famous. This happens all the time. Professional athlete becomes a Christian, and next thing you know, he's on television preaching. He doesn't know beans about the Bible. He hasn't spent any time studying. He's just become a Christian six months ago. But because he's famous and he'll attract a crowd, he becomes a leader in the church. In a church like ours, it might not be that situation, but it might be someone who's a new Christian but who's really a good speaker. We put them in charge of things all of a sudden because they're talented, but they may not be godly. So Paul says he shouldn't be a new convert, no matter how talented he is. Spiritual leaders in God's church are supposed to be mature, seasoned Christians, not immature, unseasoned ones. You say, well, how do we measure that? Where's the, where's the dividing line between someone who's not a new convert and someone who is? I don't think Paul intends that we mainly measure it in months or years, or he would have said so. We measure it in spiritual depth and maturity. We ask of this person, what does he know? What does he know? If he's going to have to be a teacher, what does he know? We also ask, how does he live? If he's going to be an example, we have to ask, how does he live? And we also ask, how has he changed? If he became a, a, a Christian a year ago, how far has he grown in that year? If he became a Christian 20 years ago, how much has he grown? Some people have been Christians for a long time and they're still very much immature. Some people may have been a Christian for a year and be very, very mature. These are the kind of questions we have to ask when we are determining whether a man should be called to the task of leadership. And Why do we need to ask that? Why does he need to be mature? Paul says, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Spiritual pride is always a temptation if you're a leader in the church. If you're a leader anywhere, pride is a temptation. If you're a leader in the church, spiritual pride is a temptation. You begin to think, I'm really a lot more godly than everybody else because I'm up here. May be true, may not be true, but pride either way goes before a fall. So before someone becomes a leader in the church, they need to have been a Christian long enough to have realized through experience and through the Word of God that they're really not that big a deal. That's why Paul says they should not be a new convert. And then the last thing in 1 Timothy 3 is that they should have a good reputation with outsiders. One pastor I heard said that it might be a good idea for a church when they're selecting elders to put a full print, full page print ad in the local paper listing the names of the candidates and saying to the whole city, if any of you knows anything about these men that you believe would make them unworthy of being a leader in our church, call Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church at 731-9066 immediately. Does that scare anybody? We would put your name in the paper? Tell folks to call us and tell us how you live the rest of the week? If you're qualified to be a leader in Christ's church, if you're qualified to be an elder, it shouldn't scare you. There should be nothing to hide from. So we need to think it out. Elders should be men who, out in the community, are examples as well. They should be men who pay their bills on time. They should be men who work hard at their jobs. They should be men who control their tempers. Men who don't say things in private that they wouldn't say from the pulpit in the church. Men who ask for forgiveness when they fail and when they sin against others. 
As Titus 1.6 puts it, they should be men who cannot be accused of dissipation, which means wastefulness or rebellion. So, we've seen 15 character traits in 1 Timothy 3. And if that weren't enough, we're going to see five more in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. So if you'll turn just a few pages over to Titus 1, we're going to see five more. Now, most of the 15 qualities that we, we saw in, uh, second, in 1 Timothy are repeated in Titus in some form or another. There are 15 in 1 Timothy and there are 15 more in Titus, and 10 of them overlap. So there are five here that are different. We're going to read first, uh, Titus 5, 1, chapter 1, excuse me, Titus 1, 5 through 9. I'll get this out. We're going to read the whole passage, and then we're just going to pull out the five qualities that we haven't seen already in 1 Timothy 3. For this reason, Paul, now speaking to another associate, Titus, says, For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, or, as we said, having children who are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So let's pull out five qualities that we haven't thought about yet. The first one is in verse 7, that the elder is not self-willed. He's not self-willed. In other words, he's not stubborn. He doesn't walk into the elders' meeting or into the business meeting of the church with a my way or the highway attitude. Rather, he's willing to listen to others. And rather than seeking to lead people based on his own personal preferences, he's radically biblical. The example that we read in that letter at the beginning was a pastor who said, biblical principle is what's most important. If it's in the Bible, that's what we're going to do. If it's not in the Bible, that's what we're not going to do. It doesn't matter what you think of me. It doesn't matter what you think of each other. The first thing is that we think of God rightly. So he doesn't think of his own personal preferences first. He thinks of the Bible first. And beyond that, he thinks of others before he thinks of himself as well. His question isn't, what, was, what would I like? But what does God say? His question is not, what, what do I want, but what's best for the church as a whole? He is not self-willed, but he lets God control his will. Verse 8, he is someone who loves what is good. Titus 1.8, loving what is good. Paul says something similar just about all Christians in Philippians 4.8. Let me read it to you. Whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now that's a command for general Christians in Philippians. But in Titus, it's even more important for the elders. They must love what is good. Now how do you tell if a man loves what is good? I'll give you a few ideas. Just find out what kind of movies he watches. Find out what kind of jokes he laughs at. Find out about his television viewing habits and his internet habits. 
Find out what kind of books he reads and what kind of magazines he subscribes to. The elder is to have his mind set on things above, not on immoral and base things. And if a man is caught up in immoral movies, television, books, magazines, and so on, he's not qualified to be a leader in God's church. But also, we can find out if a man loves what is good by looking at how he spends his time. Does he spend his time simply on himself? Or does he spend time serving others, doing what is right, serving and serving what is good? He loves his time doing it. So there loves what is good. Next, he is just. Verse 8, again, just. Quite simply, this means that the elder is someone who doesn't play favorites. Now, this is important because we already said that the elders are responsible for conflict resolution in the church, right? And if the elders are the ones who are chiefly responsible for resolving conflict in the church, don't you want men who aren't going to play favorites? Don't you want men who are going to listen to both sides of the story, hear the whole story, think about what God says and let God be the favorite, and then be not men who cater to the more powerful group. Now, also, when we think about the elder not playing favorites, it means that he doesn't get caught up in church cliques. And if the elders are an example to us all, then none of us should be in church cliques. We all belong to the whole church, especially its leaders. Next, the elder is devout. Again, verse 8, he is devout. Another word for devout is devoted. He's serious about his faith. The elders are the people who lead the way in the church in being serious about Christ and about his church. They lead the way in all the forms of devotion that are incumbent upon all Christians. All Christians should read their Bibles regularly. But if the elders aren't devout about reading their Bibles every day, what's going to happen to the people that they're setting an example for? All Christians should pray without ceasing. But if the elders aren't devout men of prayer, what will happen to the church? All Christians ought to be in church as often as they can with God's people under God's word. And that means that the elders are men who lead the way in attendance. They're the ones who are always there. They're there for prayer meeting at 9 o'clock. They're there for Sunday school at 10 o'clock. They're there for the worship service. They're there on Wednesday night unless there's some good reason for them not to be there. And I mean a good reason. They're with their church. They lead the way. They are devout. And that makes sense, doesn't it? How can someone lead and shepherd a group of people whom he's not around enough to know well? You can't shepherd people that you don't know. So elders must be the most committed people to the Lord and to his church. They must be devout. And number 20, finally, elders are males. Elders are men. Now you'll notice in Titus 1.6 and back in 1 Timothy 3.2 that Paul mentions that they must be the husband of one wife, which we've discussed earlier. I don't think that this means that an elder has to be married. Paul clearly was not married, and yet he was a leader, an elder in Christ's church. But what Paul is saying here is that if an elder is married, he must be faithful to his wife. But either way you slice it, he's assuming that the elder is a husband, not a wife. He's assuming that the elder is a man and not a woman. You say, well, why does Paul do it that way? Why is he assuming that the elders are men here? The reason why he's assuming that is because he's already written in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. 
That's why he's assuming that the elders will be males, because it is precisely the obligations of teaching and authority that elders are called to. So if Paul doesn't allow women to teach or be an authority over a man, and the elders are supposed to teach and be an authority, then the elders have to be, of necessity, males. So 1 Timothy 2.12 very clearly precludes women from serving this office. Now some of you may be saying, wait a second. What's going on here? You pulled one on us. You're giving us all these good traits, and now male chauvinism at the end of the sermon. You're saying, does this imply that women are somehow inferior to men? No, that's not what he's saying. Are you saying that this means women, by nature, would be mentally or emotionally incapable of handling a duty like leading the church? No, that's not what he's saying either. The reason why Paul says what he says is because he is trying to reflect what has already been taught to us in Genesis. That in the beginning God made them male and female. It's two different uh, genders in this world. And they're different. And in the beginning God put Adam in spiritual leadership over his wife Eve. He made her, him responsible for her spiritual needs and welfare and for her physical needs and welfare. That's the husband's job to care for his wife. And it would be pretty strange if a man at home were in charge of caring for and being responsible for his wife's spiritual and physical welfare. And then when he came to church, she were in charge of him, wouldn't it? It wouldn't make a lot of sense. And so as God has ordered the home with the husband and father having spiritual responsibility over the wife and children, he's the one that God's going to hold accountable. God's ordered his church the same way where the males handle the primary Leadership responsibilities. So elders are finally, out of these 20 things, male. Okay, now, in your lap, if you've been taking notes, or in your Bibles, if you haven't, you have a list, 20 items long, about what these men should be like. The question now is, what do you do with this list? What am I supposed to do with this? Well, first of all, you need to begin prayerfully looking around. Not right now as we're sitting in the room. Uh, someone's looking around and looking at different men and kind of going, mm, I don't think so. I don't mean do it now. But as you, as you go home and in your prayer times, you need to begin looking around. Prayerfully considering who are the men in our church who approximate to these qualities. Not the men who are perfect, because there are none. Not the men who don't have any room for improvement, because there are none of those either. Who are the men who look a lot like this prototype that Paul has been laying out for us in 1 Timothy and in Titus? You need to begin looking around for them and you need to begin praying for them. You need to begin praying that God would make them consistent spiritual guides and examples for you and for your family. You need to be praying for these men that God would help them maintain their testimony. If you look around now and say, so-and-so, I think might be one of these men. Pray that he won't fall off from the way that he's now living. You need to pray that these men would grow. All of them have areas of weakness. All of them have one or more of these qualities where you would say, yeah, he, he's doing okay, but he could stand to grow in this area. You need to pray for those kinds of things. You need to pray that God would show them if they should aspire to the office of elder slash overseer. 
Back in 1 Timothy, Paul said, if a man desires the office of overseer or elder, he desires a good thing. You need to pray that God would show them whether or not this is for them. And you need to pray that God would show the rest of us who they are so that we would all be in agreement on who these men might be. I mentioned earlier that it might be good to take your Bible or the list that you've written down today and lay it side by side with the church role and just begin to pray down through the list and pray down through the role, asking God to show you who we should recognize in December. There's something else though, that you can do with this list of qualities. Don't just lay it side by side with a church role and compare everyone else to it. Lay it side by side with your own life and compare yourself to it. We said last week that the list of qualifications that Paul gives us, that God gives us in his word for elders, is really not all that out of the ordinary. We said that the things that God is asking of elders are the things that he asks of all Christians. Shouldn't all Christians be respectable? Shouldn't all Christians be hospitable? Shouldn't all Christians love what is good? Or is there like a category of Christians of people who hate what's good, but they're still Christians? No. All of these things, with the exception of the ability to teach, are things that we should all be aiming for. We should all want to be free from the love of money. We should all want to be faithful husbands or wives. We should all want to be good parents. So there's nothing abnormal about this list. God isn't calling his, his elders to be supermen. He's simply calling them to be the ones who lead out in these qualities, the ones who excel in these qualities, the ones whom everyone can look to and say, I want to be this, and so I'm going to imitate him. So if this list is for the elders so that we can imitate and, be, and learn from the example of the elders, then this list really is also for us too, isn't it? So we need to lay it next to our own lives and do some measuring. We need to gauge our own spiritual condition. And one of the ways that we can do so is by looking at this list. So think it through this week. Take some time this week to walk through the list, praying for the men in our church that might be the elders, but also to walk through examining your own life. And you know what you'll find if you do that? You'll find that just like the men who might be leaders in our church, you too have great room for improvement. You will find just like the men who might be leaders in our church, you too fall short of the glory that God intends that you bring him with your life. You will be reminded again that you really do need a savior. You'll be reminded again that you haven't got it all figured out yet. And you will give yourself another opportunity to come to the savior in neediness and in confession and in thanksgiving for his forgiveness and in worship. If you take this list seriously, you will find yourself kneeling again, face down at the foot of the cross, pleading for mercy and receiving it. And that's the best place for the church and for her leaders to be. So let's pray that we would. Father, um, this list is primarily for the men who are going to be spiritual leaders in your church. And we want to take it seriously as that. We want you to help us to think about what you mean and to look for these qualities in our men, to pray for them, to train them, to raise them up, to recognize them and to um, follow them. But God, we recognize that if we are to follow them, if they are to be our examples, then the list of what they should be is also a list of what we are trying to become. So help us be the people that you have called us to be.
Make us a beautiful bride. Make us well-fed and healthy sheep for you. God, the way you make us that is when we are constantly retreating back to the cross, back to your Son, and finding the forgiveness that we need and finding the strength again in Him that we need to do what is right and to be what is right. So send us back to Him now, even as we sing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.